Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. It's Wednesday afternoon, and we're excited to be on the air. Your hosts for today's show are Robert Brining and Jack McEnroe. They will be taking your calls and speaking out on the topic of the week. You're encouraged to call in and share some of your life experiences. The number to call is 347-215-9442. That's 347-215-9442. Welcome to Paz IM Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Pause I Radio. I am Robert Brining, and I am joined by my co-host, who's in California this week, Jack McEnroth. How are you doing today, man? Hey. <laughs> uh, live and in person from L.A. I'm a mess, though, man. Like, allergies. I prefer the concrete jungle of New York, let me tell you, because I'm, like, <laughs> a crusty-eyed, like, puffy mess since I've been here. So, But I'm glad to be back because I've been out for a couple weeks, so... It's nice to be able to, like, actually do this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, right, a little bit back to schedule. Yeah, last week um, you were filming, so you were out there doing your thing, right? Yeah, so, yeah, I would have, I mean, there's been a couple times where I had conflicts, but I could say, like, listen, I need an hour, and then I would stop and, like, go somewhere, you know, and luckily you can do this by phone. And But, you know, there's a can- listen, when there's three camera crews there, you can't just say, like, I'm going to take an hour and run off, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, but it all went really well, so I'm happy about that. Great, great. Before we um, talk about today's guest, do you have any um, announcements or anything you want to put out there for people? Um, no, I'm good. <laughs> okay, just wanted to make sure. Uh, today we're going to touch on um, HIV in prison, and our guest today, Mark Olmsted, is a long-term survivor who was, I'm sorry, who in, I'm sorry, I'm trying to see where I'm reading here. He took care of his brother who died of AIDS in 1991. Mark was diagnosed with full-blown AIDS in 93, where he then was incarcerated in prison, um, had a meth addiction, and then while in prison started a blog called The Trash Whisperer, which is an interesting name. I'm kind of curious to where he came up with that. Right. Um, which talks about HIV in prison, which is something that, you know, isn't really talked about often enough, no, I don't think. No, I know. I have so many questions about, like, how they're treated, if they're, like, segregated, and, you know, what go I mean, it's a whole world. Luckily, I haven't been in prison yet. <laughs> so, um, I mean, who knows what the future holds. But right now, like, you know, it's like a, a world that is completely foreign to me, so it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say. Yeah, he was incarcerated in 2004, and he spent nine months in, in California prisons. Um, and while he was incarcerated, his sister offered to start a blog about being an HIV-positive inmate. And um, he's actually celebrating four years of sobriety, so kudos to him for that. Right on. Um, it's interesting because he's going to talk about being in prison with HIV, and there's a guest in the chat room, AZ, um, and he actually used to work in prison back in the day when HIV was coming out and they were, you know, gone through, received, had to be put into certain rooms to hand out their meds and 
I'm, I'm trying to get him to call in later on in the show so he can talk about the opposite side of being um, the, the officer in the prison instead. Yeah, of being, I mean, or even if he just types in some interesting questions, that would be that would be good. Yeah. So um, since this is the first uh, show of June, I wanted to go over our guests coming up. Um, on June 7th, we will have Nina Martinez, who um, has a wonderful story, and I, I can't wait for her to come on. She's uh, she was diagnosed, I believe, with HIV at a, at a very, very young age. She had a, a blood transfusion, and so she's been living with HIV for, I want to say, 26 years. And I think she actually called into the show, Jack. Remember we called her grandma? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she's actually, uh, you know, younger than both of us, so. No, I know. She sends, she, she sends me little Facebook messages here and there, so. Yeah, I, she's cute. She's adorable. Yeah, we're going to have her on on the 7th. And then Jim Frederick, who is an HIV-positive artist, is going to uh, be on with us Wednesday, June 10th. Bob Bowers is going to be with us on the 14th of June. On the 17th of June, we're going to have uh, Kenji Cat who um, is such an inspirational guy. I mean, he does a lot for the homeless, uh, people with HIV who are homeless, and he's battled sickle cell, cancer, HIV, and being homeless. So he has a very inspirational story, and I can't wait for him to come on as well. Wow, that's great. All right. And then on the 21st, we're going to have Ken Howard, who is an HIV-positive therapist. On the 24th, which is a show that, Jack, it's, it's going to be me and you, and I'm a little nervous about it because I love this girl. We're going to have Marvelyn Brown on. Oh, really? I love her too. She's amazing. Yeah, she's don't be nervous. She's like she's a hoot. She's super funny and nice and sweet. Yeah, I can't wait to have her on. And she was actually somebody who first reached out to me when I first started this. So I always okay. like to give back to people like that. And actually, we have Mark here on the line, so I'm going to go ahead and bring him on. Uh, hello, Mark, welcome. Hello, Mark. <laughs> Robert and Jack. Hey. Hey. <laughs> How you making out here. today? I'm fine. It's June gloom here, but I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of liking it. The, I find the uh, the Southern California sun a bit relentless. Yeah, no. So, I'm, it's nice to have a break, actually. Yeah. yeah, but I'm feeling good. I'm feeling sunny. Where exactly are you? Like, I'm in uh, Hollywood in Little Armenia. Okay, so I'm yeah. probably like ten minutes away from you, actually, right now. So. <laughs> yeah. I can see I can see you from my window. Where, yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll just go stand out on the roof and do a high kick, and you'll see me. <laughs> like in that video. <laughs> so, Mark, um, um, you actually um suggested, you know, as a guest from Brian Levinson from The Sin, and I have to tell you that it's it's very inspirational your blog, and I think it's an important thing for people to talk about. It's not talked about enough. Um, first, I want to, before we get into the blog, because I know that kind of happened when you were in prison, I want to talk right. about when you first became HIV positive and how, you know, that process went for you. Well, you know, there's a through line between me becoming HIV, HIV positive and me coming to prison, which is kind of very, which is kind of interesting, and uh, I write about a lot, and I'd be happy to talk about But basically... You know, I uh, converted at the very, very beginning. I was uh, young. I was in college. I was in New York. I was very uh, sexually active. And as soon as this thing came uh, in the forefront into the news, I knew instinctively that I was, you know, one of the chosen, so to speak. Um, and then I actually had a big, lymph no a big lymph node reaction in 82, which I'm pretty sure was my conversion. So 
I proceeded with the assumption that I was positive until 1988 when I finally decided to take the test, and my T cells were already at a at a level that was showed that I had I was probably infected for several years. They didn't have uh, viral loads back then, but uh, it was like 650, and normal normal was between 800 and 1200. So. I proceeded to uh, go through what we all went through then, which which is uh, abject terror. Um, and what I personally felt that I had to do in order to survive the fear was surrender to it. Uh, I went from being afraid to a complete acceptance of the uh, a, a, a complete assumption that every two years were my last two years. And that was a completely realistic assumption at the time, given the fact that everyone around you was getting sick and dying. Right. Uh, I, I lost, you know, an extraordinary amount of friends, but the, 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 and, and I lost my brother who was gay, who died. Uh, I came to the West coast to take care of him and he was an HIV doc of all things. And he died in 1991. So, uh, by that time, I had developed a psychology of, of first of all, that I was I made friends with the idea of, of dying early, and I this I decided you know I wasn't going to have to deal with all the uh, 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 all the all the travails of growing older, especially as a gay man who was used to turning heads and, and, and dreaded getting older like we all do, and. Um, uh, it also, unfortunately for me, I went from the idea of living in the moment, which is a good thing, to living for the moment. So I had this, I developed a psychology where I had an obligation to enhance the rest of my life and to make it super duper, you know, uh, interesting and wonderful. And I found that when I did, drank a lot and did drugs, that, that I had all these what I termed adventurous experiences, and I felt like I was enhancing my life. In fact, I was just really um, uh, feeding my addiction. But for many years, it did work. And as everyone kept dying and I kept not dying, I developed a, a sort of very unhealthy psychology that I was, um, that consequences for, were for other people. And I, you know, I became addicted to getting away with things, you know, and the idea I had in my mind was that I was going to pay the ultimate consequence because we're talking now still 91, 92, 93, 94, still there's just AZT and there, and, and uh, I was going to pay the ultimate consequence so I could rationalize almost any sort of behavior. And it was um, really insane what I ended up doing. My brother died in 1991 and I didn't tell I was responsible for, I lived with him and I was responsible for handling his affairs. And I didn't tell the banks, I didn't tell the credit card companies. Uh, and when he got a uh, new license in the mail, uh, I uh, like a request for a renewed license in the mail, I went down and I stood in line and I got my picture taken and I got a license as he. And for 10 years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was, this is, I mean, really insane stuff. But it, but it was at the same time. I, you know, I used his credit cards. I, I, I uh, ran them up, and then I would get a viatical settlement because I'd made sure I'd gotten a lot of life insurance. And for those of you who don't know what a viatical settlement was, when they would buy your insurance, you know, a bunch of doctors had to sign off that you were you had a life expectancy of 24 months. 
And, you know, and that's, that's a heady thing. When doctors tell you you're not going to be around for more than two years, you can rationalize anything you want, especially in the political climate where I could say, well, you know, they're not doing anything for AIDS. And certainly under Reagan that was true, much less so under Right, you know, but I think what people don't remember, I mean, that was very common. I remember, because I was around the same time, not quite as early as you, but I converted in, like, 90, so it was the same thing. Everyone was selling off their life insurance policy just to get money to pay for all their medical bills and the, just because they couldn't work and pay for their life, which, you know, they thought wasn't going to be very long, so... In my case, it paid for a lot of travel, a lot of dinners out, a lot of fun, and a lot of drugs, you know? Well, and, and, yeah, people, some people did that, too, you know? Live it up if you're going to die in 24 months or less, so... Yeah. And I and I have you know kind of a criminal mind. Uh, you know I'm very I'm very well educated, and I just uh, I I I can rationalize anything. And 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 the prospect of impending death is the ultimate rationalization. You know, um, and you know I thought I was living in the present and I was making lemonade from lemons. You know, but in fact I was just rationalizing a lot of bad behavior. So since we got to get to HIV in prisons, I'll try to speed it up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> the fact that. Uh, uh, there came a point where all my little mechanisms, what I would do is I would run up the, the, the credit cards and then I would, I would insure them and then I would forge my brother's death certificate and send them in to the insurance company and they would pay off the credit cards. So um, it was quite a nifty little scam and uh, being a, developing a, a, a uh, love of crystal meth. Uh, I also was up all night on Photoshop learning forgery skills, and um, eventually, uh, you know, the the meth, uh, the money kind of ran out, and I started selling a little extra just to friends, and found out that I was very good at it. And within a year, I had a thriving business, um, uh, making a hundred thousand a year, and employing you know a little raft of barnacles who uh, I would keep off the street and pay their medical bills and they would do walk my dog and and you know I was living an, an absolutely insane life that felt didn't feel insane because I was having a lot of fun and when people come to you for um, meth you know all the damage happens off screen you know when they when they when they're there and you're offering to them and they're getting high and they're like oh I needed this so bad and I'm having a good time and let's go fuck uh, oh, can I say it on the radio? Yeah, you can just say whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just rationalized the shit out of everything. Well, finally, uh, this came to a head. You know, and here's the weird thing. This, at exactly the time the miracle drug started coming in, I had that weird feeling of like, I didn't plan for this. I'm not, I don't, you don't understand. I'm supposed to die. I'm not supposed to live. And I was so deep in my addiction at that time that, that, you know, I had the worst trouble being compliant with my meds because it didn't fit into my plan. I mean, I didn't want to die, but I didn't really know how to live. And when I look back, when I look at it from from a global perspective, I realized that I engineered everything so that because prison was the closest I could come to a death. Right. I need closure from 15 years of living with this incredible anticipation and going on disability and having my career totally screwed up because, you know, you know, when you're 33 and you stop working, you know, and you want to start working again at 44, 42, you know, you have this five 
your seven-year gap as your resume, and plus, you know, then I had a drug problem by then. So, right. um, uh, and so prison ended up being a form of uh, closure for me and in a, in a capacity for rebirth. So I end up being very uh, sort of grateful for, to it, although I really don't recommend it. I would recommend rehab instead. Right. <laughs> and you'll find out why I really don't recommend it. But in my case, uh, it's become just part of my life. So I finally got arrested for the dealing in uh, August of 2003, and uh, they didn't let me take my meds with me to, to jail. And while I was getting bailed out, uh, I didn't. I was wasn't on my meds for three days. So when I finally got bailed out and I went back, uh, I had no record, and 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 I ended up, uh, you know, they ended up making them think that I was going to slap a giant lawsuit on the city uh, because I was getting staph infections because I didn't have my meds for three days. And it was a bunch of bullshit, but it right. worked. Slap on the on the wrist and third hours community service. And but it would it would have meant me. Um, it would have meant me also peeing, having to pee to, to prove that I was being sober, and I wasn't ready to get sober yet. So what I did is my best thinking, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, is I forged my own death certificate and posing as my brother, reported myself dead to my probation officer. Oh, my God. And, yeah, and it was... You I need to write a book. <laughs> I am, yeah. I am, I am writing a book. Yes, this is on the way. So, yeah, uh, yeah, and so... Um, uh, and they, they they threw out everything. They say they send a condolence letter, et cetera. But you know, I discovered that if you fake your own death, you need to move. You know, it's just a little hint. Right. Uh, because they figure out you're still there and you're still selling drugs. And so, <laughs> and, and, and God forbid I should just do the community service and get sober. But that's how that's this is this meth thing is a very serious, very deep addiction. Um, right. I like all addiction. So anyway, so I was arrested, and this time he says you're going down. So, so uh, and then the, the worst thing, of course, was my family, uh, who I had lied very successfully to. I was really a very skillful liar. They knew my sisters knew they didn't. They knew something was going on. They knew I, I was I did drugs, but they had no idea of the extent of it. And so they found every, everything, including the abuse of my brother's uh, life and memory, and. Uh, that was uh, the worst thing that could possibly have happened, but also the best thing because this was the opportunity for us to set, to get close again. And my sisters were like, we love you, we will absolutely support you, but you have got to make a commitment to change your life. And uh, thank God I had nine months in prison to be physically separated the drugs and to regain my sanity. You know, that's, 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 the, re that's the form of rehab I needed. You know? Is that what got um, you clean, going to prison? Well, that was a question I had uh, yeah. specifically because, I mean, I've seen, uh, you know, all the stuff on TV to have lockup and all those shows. And uh, I know you can get drugs in prison. Like, I don't know how easy it is to do in, partic in particular what prison you're in and all that stuff. But how how was that for you? Like, the Well, the thing is, is that once I went through, I told them I, told them I was on, um, I, I was suicidal because I thought it would make the judge more sympathetic, and instead they put me under, under you know, in a white room where with nothing, not you know, my glasses, no books, absolutely nothing, where you had to, for seven days I had to, uh, 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 you know, t call the guard to, 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 to flush my toilet, you know. It was, uh, and there was nothing but me, and my conscience 
and my wreckage and the view from the little slit in Twin Towers of the highway uh, that I couldn't even see. And that's really, I needed that seven days of absolute confrontation with the consequences. This is where this had brought me. And I was, I knew then I was never going to sell drugs again. And I was not absolutely sure I wasn't going to use it, but I, I, I went long enough before I was offered them. But by the time I was offered them, I was clear that, that, that the gig was up. Right. Um, you know, I, I probably could have accomplished it in rehab, and I hardly recommend that the system, the prison system, needs to be geared toward rehab and not incarceration. Because, um, uh, uh, but in my case, it worked for me. I mean, prison was a friggin' scary experience. I can't understand why it isn't motivation enough for anybody who goes to never go back. Well, I think that's why we're talking to you today, because I don't think people get it. Like, I mean, I I don't think people know what a prison to most people is a total foreign abstract concept. I don't, I, you know, you see it on TV or in, or even if it's like a non-reality, if it's a real, you know, a scripted show, it's, it's, I don't think you can grasp what the experience is really like until you live it. Well, and also here's what I learned about all the guys who I was in with who weren't HIV positive, just is that for an enormous section of the underclass of this country, uh, because overwhelmingly 90% of the guys in prison come from poor and working class families, uh, and usually poor families, for so many of them, prison becomes the equivalent of a factory job that they go to every day, and then they get two weeks off a year, and then they're out. And the t- their time outside becomes... Um, becomes their fantasy life, and their time inside it just becomes their lot in life. I mean, right. these guys cycle and cycle and cycle through. And the thing is, is that even that seems very illogical to us because we're comparing our relatively comfortable, nice, uh, middle-class or upper-middle-class lives to prison. But for them, when they come out of prison, in order to have the straight and narrow, they don't have any support system. They are going right back to the same environment that was before. They, uh, if they get a job, it's a menial, dead-end job. Sometimes right. they feel much harder than their boss. They're trying always to support families. They all have kids, and they, and they all end up turning to selling drugs and doing uh, credit fraud or doing all the various things because they want to be providers for their families. They want to bring the bicycle home, the gift home. They want to buy diapers, and they want to have fun. Well, of course, and all of them, all of the drug dealers are drug users. They're all addicts, and they'll have problems. And, of course, so, that, so, so for them, it's sort of like a, it's an economically logical, insane thing for them to do to go into crime. And they all think that they'll get away with it. And they do. They get away for six months. They get away for, for a year. They find themselves. And they go back to jail. And then that's, that's the price. That's their life. It's like, you know, they don't even question it. And so, it's, a bro- it's a horribly broken system. So, well, how, and for, any, for the people that are listening, how was it, how was the experience for you? What was it like? Like, what, like, uh, give us a glimpse into the daily routine. Like, why was it so, um, I mean, obviously it's not, it's not a picnic, but what were the negative aspects of it? Like, what was your, a day, a day in the life of you in prison? Well, you know, there's, I was, I was only in from nine months and there was three distinct, there's four distinct parts to my incarceration. There was county jail when I was first arrested in which, since it's LA, you have the option of, um, of going in the gay dorms. 
and I was in the nicest of the three gay dorms uh, with a big screen TV and the, the, the less of the violent uh, offenders. And that was um, – the food was terrible. The noise level was terrible. But we were all – we were mostly gay. There was a bunch of straight guys there who, who get in because it's safer than being in the straight dorms. But they're obviously, you know, not hostile. Uh, there's the drag queens and the transsexuals there. And uh, that was relatively – if the food wasn't so uh, dreadful, that wasn't, uh, uh, that wasn't, quote, too bad. You know, it was, it, was, it, was e it was fairly easy time. But for me, you know, not having my freedom was just a horrific sh shock. And right. you still hadn't shaped the, the, the politics uh, of it, which could be very dicey, you know. But – I tell you, it's the only place in prison where the racial politics didn't rule. rule. We were gay first, and the black and white and Latin thing uh, was separate. And this is what really has to be. Then, then I got transferred. Then I was sentenced, and I went to a place called Delano, which was the, the the place where everyone goes for eight weeks, which is the central processing where it's decide it's being decided where you're going to do the rest of your time, right? right? So that is that was by far the scariest and hardest of it because you're mixed with much more serious offenders. There's no gay dorms. Uh, you know, you have to be very down the down low about being gay or HIV positive. And it, it was, uh, and the and what, ha and what happens to you if you're not, if you're a vocal about being gay or HIV positive? Like, well, um, this is what I almost, there, no one is, you're just not, you know, but they find it out. And what you have to do is you have to be dicey and fast enough. Here's the weird thing, is that once you get to the regular prison, you're white first, you're Latin first, you're black first, and you take care of your own. Right. So the, the, the only people I had to worry about were the other white guys who wouldn't like me because I was gay. But right. what I figured quickly to do was to, uh, uh, to make friends uh, to uh, accommodate them, I, like I washed the uniforms for suit. So then if they kind of needed me. And I was always pretty good at, you know, I wrote poetry, love poetry for the straight guys for their girlfriends back home. I'm right. one called a rose without a thorn. I, uh, I would write, I wrote whole letters for one Latin guy because he didn't know what, how to talk to her. And so I wrote her, I wrote love letters for him. So I was able to, to, to make friends and uh, and I told people I was in pill line every day because I had had prostate cancer. So that's another. Uh, but question eventually, I, that's, an, that's another question I had really quick to jump in is through this whole experience in the first in the gay dorm and then in the second holding prison, how were you getting your meds? Like you, they they they, they consult your doctor. How do you? How does that all work? Yeah, they, they immediately medically process you. They ask you a med you want, and they're actually amazingly efficient at get you, getting you your meds. Uh, they would also, even for a time, I don't think they knew it, they, they would give you Wellbutrin if you said you were depressed, and, um, and then we would snort it up and snort that. So I did do that, and it was like, talk about a crappy high. It was like, you know, two cups of coffee. But it was all about the ritual that you were starting to, let's get together and do a Welby later, you know. And it, it, was, it was like, you know, uh, it, that, that was, that was the, the, then, then the other thing that has to be remembered about the California prison system is they are the biggest drug dealers in, on the planet. One third of the, uh, one third, third of the 
inmates are on some form of psychiatric or medication. Usually a pill called Seroquel, which is just a huge-ass tranquilizer, which you, you take a quarter of, and some guys were on a lot more. And a lot of guys sleep away their sentence. And so when, when you had pill call, there were so many people lined up for that, that if you, you know, in the gay dorm it was no problem. Half the people were HIV, and there was, there was, it was just no big thing. But when I got down the system, you, you had to lie about it until I got to Chino, which was my f final place, where, um, where there was these huge lines for pill call, and uh, but you know they eventually figured out that I was uh, HIV positive, and I, um, and, and you know. Here's what you have to understand about being HIV positive in prison is that it's so mixed up with the gay thing that they're virtually indistinguishable. However, the racial politics trump all of that. So you can't reach across racial lines so that you can unify with the other gay or HIV positive people. Wow. So you have to find your buddy or two or three within your racial group. So I found a guy named Earl, and Earl and I became bunkies, and Earl was, was fun, and luckily we both had generous families, but I had a very generous family, so I ha always had my locker full. And I, no one, black, white, Latin, everyone knew they could come for a shot of coffee. And right. I, made, I sent that message out very clearly, but when I first got there, the message was, you know, we got a gay, uh, um, I'd been in protective custody for a while, and so they, they were suspicious of me, and they figured out I was gay, and, um, and the rumor was that uh, they were going to tax me And when I got my first package. And so I asked what them what I should do. Tax me meant they were going to take a portion of what my package was, just because oh, okay. I was gay. But, but what it was, it was a signal that uh, they wouldn't, if I, if I let them know, I would fight. Now, I am exceedingly nonviolent, <laughs> and I let people knew that if there was a race riot, because they were always preparing for a race riot, always preparing for a race riot, uh, if there was a race riot, that, that, that I was, they couldn't count on me. But I did say I will defend if someone attacks me for my, my stuff, and I have HIV-positive blood, and I don't think you want that all over you. So I used that to my advantage. Right. But had to do was, you know, I saw who the, sh the shot caller was, a, there's a shot caller who's the head of each of the racial groupings, and his name was Jimmy, and he was soap opera handsome, and uh, I, Earl and I just decided to make friends with him, and from, he went from warning everybody that he was going to beat the hell out of anyone who shared a cigarette with someone who was, um, who, who might be gay or HIV positive, to rolling our cigarettes because we would get tobacco, and then we would, we would roll cigarettes for soup, and then he would uh, lick them for us because otherwise we couldn't sell them because they didn't want any gay lips on their cigarettes. Right. I mean, and we didn't even know if it was gay or HIV positive. I thought it was an HIV positive thing. It turned out to be a gay thing. I mean, these guys have really, really um, Neanderthal ideas about homosexuality and about uh, how HIV is transmitted. Right. It's like they've existed in this bubble, and there's very little education. There's no the, – the consciousness of the guards. You know, prisons are very understaffed. There's no social work. Uh, well, you know, and I oh, – yeah. to, to that point, I mean, don't you think it's desperately needed? Because the HIV rates among both straight and gay inmates is, you know, astronomical, apparently. 
Well, but, you know, you don't get it in prison. Uh, there, there, I didn't see any screwing except a little bit in the gay dorms. Everyone comes in, they're already positive. They've got right. it. It's all drug drugs. Drugs. And... And, yeah, so so really the, the only way to realistically deal with HIV in prisons is uh, uh, the medical care is not half bad um, for prisons compared to what I expected. I mean, the problem is is that they pay prison doctors less, and if you've been – if you had a problem at a practice somewhere else, if you graduate in the bottom five of your class, or you're Lebanese, I had Dr. Shalabi, and you're, you know, you, we, we get the worst worst of the bunch, but what do you expect? Well, you know, someone who graduates at the top of their class in Harvard is not going to work in a prison. Right. Uh, so, yeah. But they don't have any social programs that they would come in and, like, just educate people on how you transmit HIV or there's nothing like that. that it doesn't would... matter. The guys listen to each other. They wouldn't hear it, you know. Right. Uh, they're, 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 you know, the, the teaching and education uh, component of rehabilitation in prison is, com- is completely nil, and now the budget is not there for it to all been cut. And, you know, the best thing that Schwarzenegger can do right now is uh, is – uh, you know, he needs to release half the uh, 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 nonviolent inmates, if not all of them, because uh, and 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 spend half, half the money signed on rehabs. These guys need uh, they go back out and then they're fine if they don't go back to the drugs. But within these poor communities, there's very little support. There's very little. There's no 12 step. There's hardly any 12 step to speak. Can I backtrack for a second? And because sure. I just I know, especially within like the gay male community, there's this whole prison fantasy that, and you just mentioned that there's not a lot of sex going on, but like, um, well, here's that, the thing. It, 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 yeah. it, it is not like Oz, okay? Right. Christopher Maloney will not make out with you. Right. Not to mention that <laughs> really good-looking guys uh, have a teeth missing, so it's really right. you know. Uh, uh, but there is tremendous. Now, there's, there's also there's, there's three different levels of prison, level one, two, and three. I was in minimum security at least my last five months, and it's dorms, so there's no privacy. The few guys right. who managed to have sex, I don't quite know how they did it. I've been told they did it in porta potties. The one guy I met, Rudy, who was who had been there for ten minutes, who was really gorgeous and, and very butch, and he was like a prison fantasy. He liked Latin boys, and that he got beat up by a bunch of white guys because he had screwed with a Latin guy. Not because he had screwed with the guy, right. but you weren't supposed to screw outside of your race. Uh, uh, you know, you could get a blowjob, but if you know, but and, and so the whole thing, like you know, the the Oz fantasy of um, becoming someone's bitch, so they'll protect you. That's that doesn't really exist, or is that more well, for like? You know, listen, in federal prison or in maximum security, where people are there for years and they have the privacy of cells that they can close. I'm sure that actually occurs. Okay, I got it. Uh, uh, that occurs. In minimum security where I was, I saw very little of it. And, and even if I wanted to, I wouldn't have known, uh, I, I wouldn't have known how to set it up, you know. Right. Uh, I was also without testosterone injections, which, and so I had, and I have no natural testosterone, so I had no libido. And so I really couldn't care. I mean, I jerked off twice. And it was very hard to even do that, you know, because you're on the top bunk and you're shaking. And, right. And, uh, uh, it's, you know, and, but I developed a few crushes. I mean, there were some hot bodies. But, you know, the very interesting thing was it was really an opportunity for me to educate. Um, and, you know, I was not allowed – I had to sit alone for the first uh, couple of months. I had my little New Yorker magazine. I was probably the only one ever reading the New Yorker at a prison table. Uh and then um, I had to make my own friends. So this drag queen named um, 
uh, uh, Lynn, whose real name is Melvin, who was the ugliest drag queen on creation, but who was Ontario's, you know, drag queen prostitute. Uh, she came in after failing, and I decided to make friends with her. Uh, and I say her because she had breasts, but, and, uh, but you know, uh, uh, you know, they, they respected me for, like, being unapologetic about it. And they would say stuff like, I don't care if you're HIV positive or you're gay, you just be upfront about it. This whole idea in prison is that you're supposed to be upfront about it. Even though they also tell you if you're upfront, you know, Chainsaw was a, was a gorgeous guy who was just a fucking fascist who decided to ferret me out in Belano, and he kept asking me if I was HIV positive. And, and I was just like, unless you're planning to sleep with me, it's none of your business. And he didn't really like that. So he almost... Um, I almost had problems with him when I got transferred right before he was probably going to have me the shit kicked out of me or something like that. Well, um, I have a question from the chat room here. Um, somebody mentions that um, oh, no, I just freaking lost it because of the chat. That um, if an inmate was taking narcotic, the tougher guys would try to actually make them, I guess, regurgitate the pill to take the drugs. Is that something that you experienced? I don't understand. Uh, if someone... Like, say you were taking a narcotic, and one of the big, bigger guys in there wanted your drugs, they would make you throw it up so they could take your drugs. I, I never saw that. You know, much more likely, if you were prescribed um, a narcotic, uh, you know, like Seroquel, there was, a, there was a lot of dealing. You know, you would say, I, you, you owe me a Seroquel, uh, I want a Seroquel, so here's here's two soups. Soups are what is the cash of prison. So there was a lot of legal drug dealing. You know, Seroquel was that tranquilizer. I used to save up my Neurontins, which I have for neuropathy, and sometimes um, if you took three or four at a time, you could catch a buzz. And um, uh, so I would sell them occasionally and trade them for soups. Uh, but no, I never I never heard of uh, of that, uh, of that going yeah. on. You know, if you, if you, if you, you know, a lot of people, there's not enough food in prison. You know, they give you this crappy, crappy lunch. And if you don't have, uh, and then they give you a decent dinner, but usually by four you're starved. So if you don't have any money sent from home, which a lot of them don't, don't for uh, extra food to buy from the commissary, like a, a soup to make for lunch, for example, then um, you find ways to make extra money. And so, you know, People would sell their Wellbutrin or sell their Seroquel, and you'd pay them with soups and or coffee, you know. Um, and then there was a few tweakers who were getting crystal, and they were getting in debt to the Latins, who were the ones who ran the, the, the debt. And they would um, uh, be sending letters to their families and trying to get money from their families, and then they would go in protective custody. And, you know, protective custody is very dangerous because – uh, once you get out, they will remember the debt and they will send someone after you. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, I remember there's this, there's this sweetheart, this 22 year old who I wrote a poem about, uh, uh, who was, you know, who who did that, and he was just scared to death for his family. And uh, you know, taking drugs in prison is a very dangerous thing because they will charge you and they will make sure you pay for it. And uh, and that's that scared me enough. But I, by the time I was out, I was like, you know, it's time to get sober and try to get sane again. So I did, and, and I never, I never looked back. Uh, you know, but what happened? The, the interesting thing about the blog is that halfway through my stay, my sister said, you know, your letters are amazing. 
because I decided if I was going to be in there, I was going to observe this, observe the, the shit out of this place. Right. I mean, there's a lot of fascinating characters. And so she says, I'm going to start a blog for you. So she started typing up every letter that I, um, I wrote, would write a post a day, and she'd type it up and she'd post it. So all my friends and a lot of strangers could follow me and follow my experience while I was in there. And it was an extraordinary act of love, but it also got me writing on a daily basis, which is something I really needed to do for, for my recovery. And, um, and, and I continue that to, 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 uh, to this day, although it's, the title has changed and the focus is obviously not about prison anymore. Um, it, it gave me a little niche. Uh, and then I started a blog for somebody else when I got out in prison and until he got out. Very, very interesting. And your blog is thetrashwhisperer.blogspot.com, correct? That's right, yeah. Just what happened is that I, I, when I get out in Little Armenia, I, I noticed that the, the, the streets, are, the litter problem here is very bad. So while I was walking my dog, I just decided to get a, uh, little, a, um, a trash picker, and I pick up trash while I walk my dog. And it, 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 there's nothing like it to, for me to, to – I do other things to stay sober that – I have to be an honest about, but but uh, but this has been one of the best things that I've found that I could do because uh, it's like a form of meditation, and I live on the only clean block in Hollywood, and I make friends with these people who who look at me, and you know, and uh, and it also gives me funny experiences to write about. You know, it's hard right. to keep a blog interesting, as you guys know. I actually <laughs> have some callers online here, Mark, so I'm going to sure. go ahead and bring them on for you. Uh, the first caller, area code 602. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, my name's uh, Gene Thompson, and I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. And hey, Gene. Uh, hello, Robert. Hello, Mark. Hey, I, I worked for I worked for 25 years. I don't know if you've ever heard of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, the guy who with the pink underwear and makes the guys stay in the tents and feed some green bologna and. He was the first guy to... The, the Maricopa Sheriff? Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. That's who I worked for for 25 years. Ouch. Oof. And I worked on the um, uh, on the medical floor. I'm a, I'm a physician's assistant. So I, I'm uh-huh. seeing it differently from an inmate and seeing it differently from a detention officer. And a couple things I wanted to, to say. You know, in, in our jail, we had a lot of very good physicians come through. Um, they were coming through because they were trying to pay back loans they 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 didn't have the money to to go to medical school or or do their training with so they they used our our gel as a stepping stone to to pay back money um mm-hmm. and they were they were intelligent uh we did have have a lot of people that came through uh working for their visas to stay in the in the united states mm-hmm. um so we we did have a lot of uh of foreign people working there and then there were cheap people people like me that that liked working there because of the hours. You worked 7 to 3.30, you went home. You, you, you rarely took call. If anybody got sick at night, they went to the county hospital. And you didn't have to worry about malpractice insurance, which right. is really high. So so there were, were some good people there. And no, then, and I have to – listen, I think that the medical uh, system in California gets a bad rap. Uh, the prison system, I'm sure it's bad in some areas, but I actually received very good care. I had Dr. Shalaby, who was a wonderful doctor. Uh, some of the nurses were, were quite wonderful. I felt that they were doing an extraordinary job under horrifically difficult uh, circumstances. Yeah. Uh, the guards were not so nice, and they could be, they could be really assholes. But you guys, I, my hat's off to you, and I, I, uh, and I don't think 
they, they don't get any credit. And I was well taken care of while I was there, you know. You know, um, and then we, had a, we, we, we would have a limited budget in our pharmacy. So you try to keep right. – we would have a, a limited – I'm not very eloquent, I'm sorry. We, we, we had a very limited pharmacy budget. So, but there was so. a willingness on the part of the administration to medicate a lot of prisoners who would have otherwise been problem prisoners. Right. And that's, you know, and, and there's just an irony there is that half the prisoners were in for, for, for the consequences of their drug addiction, and they were being kept legally addicted to other things in prison. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, all that, all that guaranteed was that they had less problems and that the people would go out and they wouldn't, weren't any, any step closer to sobriety. You know, no, and that's, and that's, that's true. A revolving door. We would, we would, people would come in coming down off of heroin, coming uh, coming down down off of like Xanax and Valium, and we would we would get them off of it, and they would be clean for six seven months, and then they would go back out in the streets, and they'd go back to their methadone clinics, and they wouldn't need the methadone because they were in jail for six months, and they didn't need the heroin, so they didn't, so they would get hooked back on it and come back in again. They didn't and, know how to live sober. They had no. Right. They don't have life skills. These guys do not have life skills. And, that, and, and they have kind of a genetic. It's a genetic. I, I worked there long enough that I, I, I saw generations. I saw a grandfather one time years ago, and then I saw his son, and then I saw the grandson. So it was. Well, I wouldn't call that genetic, but culturally, certainly culturally. there is a cultural tradition in some families. But you know, you can you can be sure that neither the grandfather nor the father or the son completed high school, and the lack of education. In, in this country, and the poor education in poor communities is by far the biggest feeder of prisons. Yes, yes, you know? yes. I asked one guy once, what do you do for a living? And he said, well, and it was the guy, I was like in my 20s when I asked him. And he said, well, I, I, I don't know. And I'm like, well, what do you mean you don't know? He said, well, I've always lived in, in prisons. I went from juvie to, to jail to prison. And I've never been out longer than you said, like for two weeks. So I've never had yeah, a yeah. job. So that's what he did for a living. That's what he did for a living. Yeah. There's so many like that. It's very, very. It's overwhelming and it's very sad. And uh, 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 you know, I'll tell you one thing that, that you know, the educate. The, 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 it's very hard to pitch education for prisons when we're we're suffering for education for people who don't go to prison in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, why should someone who followed all the rules, you know, not be able to afford tuition and uh, but tell you as a cost effective thing if you don't want to warehouse people for their lives it's 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 really it's it's a completely sane response right to and, and, I, and i'm the one who mentioned about the at, at the madison street jail um the guys would watch what the other people were taking and people coming down off of alcohol we would give them librium like for a week or so to get them off the alcohol they would see this guy taking the librium and they knew what they were smart they were smart they knew what they looked like they would make the guy throw them back up, and then the guy would have to give them to these other people. Yeah. Wow. So Very it. interesting. I have a question since I have both of you on somebody who worked in prison and somebody who went to prison. What is your take on the distribution of condoms in prison? You know, <laughs> I, I preached for years that we should give condoms. We should, we should, and I turned my back a lot of times. The guys would steal latex gloves out of my room, and I let them. I mean, you know, the, it was a, a contraband. They, they they couldn't have them, but they would still the latex. You know, if they walked out, they would take a latex glove or two, because I knew what they were going to use it for. But and, what do you uh, think, as somebody who worked there, should they distribute them? Yes, I do. Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. Well, uh, well, well, my, experience 
the sheriff in county uh, in county jail a very a committed uh, uh, lesbian member uh, who who won the right and she would come in and, and distribute condoms and you could tell the guards were like barely were ready to kill her because they didn't like the gay dorms. Uh, and they tried to find ways to punish us all the time to take away our TV rights to, to you know. So uh, she would come in and she would distribute them. And there they would have been useful, except I don't know anybody who wasn't already positive. So it was kind of like, uh, you know, they, everyone I knew came gay who uh, came in was HIV positive because they were all involved in drugs. And when you do drugs and you're gay, eventually you become positive. It's just it's the way it is because you just don't pay attention. And, and, and when I went to the general prison, there was no uh, distribution of condoms, but I also saw no sex. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that it, it's, it's a good thing and, and, and a helpful thing, and I would support it, but I don't think it's going to make uh, a huge dent. What I would support and which would get me a lot of, a lot of trouble with gay activists was I, I think that the segregation of gay of uh, HIV and gays in the whole prison would was a good thing, and it was like that for many years. And I would have felt much much safer if I was with other HIV positive inmates and I, I was in the general population. And for me, it would be far much good because there's so much ignorance. But a lot of activists would, you know, and ACLU would say, no, no, no. But I, you know, your physical safety has to come first in prison, and that is the scariest thing, and that's the thing that is mostly. Uh, and the other thing I would suggest, and I've sent this in an article and the letters to the, um, to the powers that be in the California prison system, and they said they actually consider it, was that every prisoner would be able to, to opt out of the racial classification system and call himself N for nonviolent, and that you would have special housing if you were committed to the idea that none of your disputes would be ever settled with violence, and then if you violated that, you would be taken out. Because the fear of violence in prison and the, the, the pressure to participate Everyone's always talking about a race riot, what happens if the blacks attack, da, da, da. And then once a year, you know, something happens and there's an argument and then there's a little race riot, and you're forced to participate. And I had no, there was no support for anyone who says, I want to be, I want to declare myself nonviolent under our circumstances. I don't want to be in a white, I want to be part of the whites and having been with white. I want to be, you know, my, some of my best friends, it took a while, but became my black, you know, the black friends that I made on either side of me. And um, which was a joy, you know, because I got to look past all this stuff. But there's no support for that in prison. And it's very um, – and, and the drag queens. You know, the drag queens are the transsexuals. They should be in with the women because they have it by far the hardest. They are made fun of. They are ostracized. They have no support. And I did my best to reach out, but it was – you know, it was it was hard because if they were of another color, you weren't allowed. You weren't allowed to have relationships with them. That's so interesting. And, and that, yeah, and that's a re, it's ridiculous that they are with other men because it's it's you know their genitals do not make their gender. You know. Right. That's right. I have another caller online, so I have I, to let Gene go. Um, do you have a question, real quick, Jack? Yeah, I just want to know: is there any such is there such a thing as HIV testing in prison? Like, do they do that at all? Do they offer that, or is that mandatory? Or does that, how's I think that when you do. Yeah, when you do your initial intake, if you don't know, uh, uh, I, I can't remember, but I know they took blood, and I, yeah, yeah, I think that happens to everybody when you do your medical intake. Okay. Yeah, I do think that. Okay. I'm going to bring um, the next caller on. Caller, what's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, Bobby, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, Bobby, yep. we hear you. I'm, call I'm calling from Hollywood, California as well. Welcome. 
How hey, are Bobby. you? Um, I just had uh, a question. Um, uh, late uh, this past week, I had a very uh, trying and, and challenging experience. Um, uh, I'm an actor here in LA. I tend to do okay with the boys and everything like that. But my my question my question is um, is about disclosure. Like, um, for example, I was I was I was with this guy. Um, you know, basically all we did was fool around. There was some oral, but other than that, it was just masturbation. And um, he asked me, of course, the next day about my status, and I was honest with him, and he freaked out. I mean, like, literally freaked out. And on top of that, it made me feel, like, really gross and really dirty. At what point, I mean, at what point do you tell someone this? I mean, just fooling around, or, I mean, is it just, should I should I tell people My just we're going to do anal? This, or? Is, this is not really about prison, so I don't, I don't I, I want to throw that to you. Oh yeah, I mean, I basically just I, I've 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 heard these stories time and time again, and people sometimes people freak out, sometimes people don't. People are educated on what's you know safe and or safer and what's not. But the best bet to prevent that is to disclose before anything happens. And then on the flip side, I, I always try to preach to everyone because um, I've heard it from the other point of perspective where the person who's freaking out. Is, and I'm like, you know what? You just have to assume that people, if you're, engage, if you're engaging in any risky behavior, you have to assume that the person you're doing it with is positive if you don't know the truth and know specifically their status. Because in order to get certain things, people lie. People make up stories you don't know. So, I mean, but I always suggest this disclosure before even going out on a date with someone or however, you know, I, I just think it prevents right. all that stuff from blowing up in your face. I, don't, I, I feel sometimes, though, that... With with me being so young, I, I contracted fairly young, that, um, you know, if you go ahead and tell a person straight out, they don't even get to know you. And, yeah, and my, but you know what? My I experiences mean, have been that, that once I got to know a person, then normally, usually they don't care. Well, the good ones don't care, but but I, it's like, what do you, you do? Know, I Hi, I'm Bobby. To, I'm HIV positive. I think you need to look at, at, at your willingness to attach – uh, meaning to their their fear and 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 take it as a judgment on you. You know, I've always always disclosed, and there have been guys who say, "Oh, you know, I don't want to go there." And I say, "Good for you. You have absolutely every right to protect yourself, whatever." But right. I also tell them, "You shouldn't have waited for me to disclose. You should have. If 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 this is a deal breaker, you should have asked me, and you should ask everyone. If it's not a deal breaker, if you trust safe sex, then it doesn't matter, and we should just have safe sex. But." The, the 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 one thing I really advise that you don't do is you don't take this virus personally. You know, it's not a, a referendum on your quality as a human being, your trashiness, or any of your... Oh, there's so much stigma with it, though. The, the, yeah, but a lot of the stigma is the stigma we're willing to internalize and believe. And uh, it's just, it's a virus that found a way to, uh, to, to you know... And I don't, I don't allow the stigma to stick. If someone... Is it a deal breaker for someone? Then I just go, you know, go in peace, you know. Yeah, so I, and, and I also have to say that I, that you know, it's it's a it sounds cliched, but it's like if if it's a deal breaker for them, like what's the point in getting to know them initially, like and having them somehow like you or have feelings for you, and then have the information come out? I mean, 
if they're not right for you and that's going to be a deal breaker, then there's no point. I mean, there's no point in waiting to disclose because they're not the one. Sure. I, 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 I'm glad that I stumbled upon your um, program. I wish there were more support groups for, for younger people with, with HIV. Bobby, how old are you? Uh, I'm 28. Okay. Let me just tell you, I'm 30, okay? And I went through, I was diagnosed um, when I was, uh, I want to say, 21. So yeah, okay. I don't know I'm, what age I'm, you are, but I, I went through. <laughs> I was yeah. the same. I was the same. Okay. And I went through going, oh, my God, am I ever going to find somebody again? And, because, and that's because of all the stigma that, that people put on HIV. And, and, and that's what makes you, when you say you feel dirty, you know, at a time I felt dirty, too, and I thought I would never be able to find a relationship. But I can tell you now, today, I am with somebody for four years, and I told him the night we met in the middle of the dance floor in the bar. And he's been with me ever since. So I want to just give you hope and let you know that there are people out there who will love you and who will respect you and, and, and be in a relationship with you. Just because one person is going to flip out all over it, not everyone else is going to do that. And I just want to it's, give you it's hope. It's obviously been more than one, though. I mean, right. it, 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 oh, makes yeah. me, it makes me fearful, like, to, to not date at all. Yeah, I mean, I, and I don't think there's a, a, a right answer for that. I, I mean, I'm single still. I've been date. I, I, and I'm 40. I just turned 40, and I was diagnosed when I was 20. So, um, you know, and there, it's like, you know, it's, you know, it, it is a deal breaker for some people, and that's okay. But you just, ha- and it's going to keep happening, and there are going to be people that aren't educated and aren't comfortable with with dating someone who's HIV positive, and that's. That's their choice, and you have to let them have that choice. But you just have to, you know, dating's not fun in any scenario. <laughs> it's always difficult. There's always awkward situations. So you just have to keep going. But I, I, I truly, really, go ahead. And I find when I, when I don't disclose, when I disclose unapologetically, as like in a matter-of-fact way, and I say, you know, and I just say, if it's things are heating up, you know, it's a bar or something. Uh, this doesn't really happen anymore. But, you know, it, it, it used to happen. Because even when I was high, I used to disclose. Uh, and I would say, uh, you know, and if, but I would do it, if I do it unapologetically, it's like, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm paused. Is, is, is that an issue? First of all, I can't believe how often the answer was like, so am I. But even when it was, right. it wasn't, that, point. That I got their respect. I got their respect. You know, if I didn't present feeling it apologetically with a sense of stigma, then it wasn't reacted to that way. They were like, you know, and they needed to see that there was someone who was just like, yeah, make sure you be positive and, you know, and, you know, deal with it or don't deal with it. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to say I'm HIV positive and sorry because I chose to be intimate with people. You know, that's how we got it. We chose to express our sexuality and our intimacy. And there's nothing wrong with that, even if it had this consequence. And also, Robbie, I I think the less invested you have in the person that you're having this conversation with if you just met them and blah 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 and you're having this um you know disclosure within the first hour or so of meeting them so when if they do say well that's a deal breaker for me like you just met them who cares if you've waited a month until you're you know you have you have feelings invested that's when you're going to feel bad about yourself that's when all the shame comes in the stigma and the judgment so and then they can say to you, you know, you weren't honest with me. And then how do you deal with that? So none of that, that whole taking, thing. You can take that whole thing right out of, the, out, of, out of play. And you can educate them. They should, if this is a deal breaker, why are they having sex with people before they're asking? Right. You know? And if it's right. well, we, are, we are down to the last minute, so I just want to thank Bobby for calling in. I just want to, if you, want to, if you guys, anyone out there listening, want to find other people who are 
HIV positive and want to be friends, check it out at POSIM.com. That could help you out, Bobby. Mark, I want to thank you for um, calling in and sharing your story and speaking it was, about I mean, this It was issue. so interesting. I loved it. It was really fascinating. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Jack. You know, and I'm a big fan of yours from way back. Thank I you. <laughs> you off that show for its staff mix. I'm still angry about that. <laughs> uh, and listen, and Bobby, Gay and Lesbian Center has HIV support groups, chat groups, Being Alive does. There are plenty of guys you can meet. And, there, uh, and there's tons of internet websites, thebody.com, you can go to livingpositivebydesign.com, which is my website with Merck. Um, there's tons of information out there, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Mark, thanks okay. for calling in, and you have a great you guys. day. Really. Very, very. Uh, I want to thank you guys very much. It was really, it was, it was, it was kind of cool to get to, to talk about all this, and and you're great host. And right on. We'll really, keep doing what you're doing. Okay. And have a great, have a great afternoon. And remember, folks, you can learn more about me at posim.com, and you can also learn more about Jack at jackmackenross.com. Jack, it was a great show. Yeah, it was excellent. Have a good. I look forward to fun. next week. Have a great week. Okay. Bye. Bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.